Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 9. We are picking up our series there, and we are reading the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 29. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her whom was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to this significant chapter in your word, 
we confess that your word is truth, that it's trustworthy and good, and that it's only by your spirit that you lead us into all truth and understanding. And so we come weak and we come feeble today, confessing our own creatureliness, our own finiteness, our own lack of comprehension. But yet we also confess our love for you because we know your great love for us. And so take us into the depths of your wisdom and your understanding and allow us to see the majesty of your great love for us, your people, through your son, Jesus. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We are picking up in the book of Romans, and it was convenient at the beginning of the summer to pause at the end of chapter 8. And many people chided me, and they thought I was actually shirking the duty of preaching through chapters 9 through 11. If they're unfamiliar to you, you'll quickly learn as to why people were chiding me. These are some of the most challenging chapters in all of the Bible. It led to a bad night's sleep last night, thinking about all the ways that this sermon can go wrong. (laughs) But there's also so many ways in which this sermon can go right. And so over these next weeks, we will slowly work through these chapters, breaking them apart, also recognizing that this entire argument from 9 through 11 works together. And so we'll be going backwards and forwards some to help you understand what is going on here in this important part of the book of Romans. Now, European travelers in both the summer and the winter months flock by the thousands to the Lauterbrunnen Valley in Switzerland. It's there that they absorb the beauty and the majesty of the Bernice Alps. There are three peaks in particular in which people are fascinated by. And the journey takes them up through meandering, beautiful alpine meadows. If you think of something like the sound of music, if you have no concept, this is what you would see. It's gorgeous, flanked by mountain ranges on right and left. And then you arrive at the village of Grindelwald, and there is a sheer rock wall behind the village, reaching up for 5,900 feet. It's called the North Face of the Eiger. The mountain was named Eiger because it literally means ogre. It's nasty, beautiful, sheer rock wall. And of course, many people come to the village and they come to observe the beauty of the Eiger. But some intrepid travelers then try to climb the Eiger. 60, over 60 people have died attempting to go up this north face. It's dangerous. And today as we come to chapter 9, we are meeting the north face of scripture. (laughs) Many come here. (laughs) Many arrive at the foot of it and stare at it and see the dangers and the difficulties and, of course, turned away. We've meandered through those alpine valleys and meadows. Chapters 1 through 8 are a delight, speaking of the grace of God and his ways with us in Jesus and all that he's done for us and justifying us and declaring that we're right with God, not on the basis of anything what we've done, but surely and purely on the basis of what God has done for us in Jesus. We learned of the gift of the Holy Spirit, of being free from the power and control of sin, and we learned of the glory that lies ahead when God will free the world from the stain and pollution of sin and restore us in resurrecting our bodies. We've seen all of that beauty, 
And now we come to a deep mystery here. And Paul is addressing a tension that was laid out for us in chapter 1 because we learned there that there's a tension in the early church between Jew and Gentile. The gospel was for the Jew first, but also it was the power of God for the Gentile for salvation. And these Jews and Gentiles were piled into one little church there in Rome or little churches together, and they were having difficulties with one another. And so in order to address very delicate matters between Jew and Gentile, Paul explores several things about God. He explores the character of God. He explores the purposes of God. And he explores God's dealings with us in salvation and judgment. And so these three chapters take us into the heart of theology, the limits of what can be known as to what God has revealed. It's beautiful, but I will remind you that it's challenging and it's difficult. Many walk away, some find their own peril here. And so over these next weeks, we're going to scale this peak slowly. We're going to work our way through this material. It begins in chapter 9 with a lament. Paul expresses grief over his own fellow Israelites, the Jewish nation, to whom Jesus belonged. He was a Jew, and yet they have not believed in him. So he announces that grief over their unbelief. But yet this ends in chapter 11 with a doxology where Paul praises God for the depths of his wisdom and understanding the riches of his grace. He announces that from him and to him and through him are all things. And friends, if we are to read these chapters rightly, this is where we too must conclude that it all is to direct us to doxology, to the praise of God to seeing the greatness and the majesty of who he is, even when we don't understand and our own comprehension fails. And so on that way to that destination of praising God and recognizing the depth of his wisdom and his knowledge, there's three things that we'll see today. We'll learn about the decision of God and also the freedom of God. And then we'll see something of the purpose of God that he's revealed to us. So first, follow with me in verses 1 through 13. We learn here of the decision of God. This decision takes two forms, or what you could call two degrees of the word election. But in chapter 9, in verses 1 through 5, Paul is speaking of his fellow Israelites, and he is sad and he's grieved over the fact that not more of them believed in Jesus and then he says some very particular things about them in verse 4 that match with what we find throughout the Old Testament. And that is that the Israelite nation, as an ethnic people, were made a covenant with God, that God came to them through Abraham, formed a covenant with them, and set them apart as a special people with a special purpose. He then adds to that in the Mosaic Covenant, and so we find all of this collected here in verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. They are God's special people, he's saying. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who's God over all. And so the nation of Israel was elected. They were set apart. 
And it's a special form of election. It's a historical form of election in which God takes a people, sets them apart very visibly for himself. And he would use them to be a light to the nations. That was always the purpose of God with the Abrahamic family is that they would become a blessing to all the families of the earth. And this is who Israel is. And Jesus comes from this people. He's the true Israelite and the true Israelite king who brings all of that story to fulfillment. And yet he's not been recognized by the Jewish people of whom Paul is numbered. But this is the first form or degree of election that God sets apart Israel to be his own special people. He's done so today with the church. We too are set apart in this way. But there's something important to recognize, though, about this decision of God when he historically elects a people, because we see there's a second degree of election when we come to verses 6 through 8. Follow with me there. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul's basically saying, so Israel has not believed, so what happened? He's just saying God didn't fail, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, Paul's creating a fine distinction here, that yes, many people, there were many Israelites who belonged to the Israelite family, but they were not true Israelites. And so what he's arguing here is that there's such thing as a spiritual Israelite, one who is converted, one who believed in the promises of God. And that that distinction must be held. So Israel contained the whole nation were the expected heirs of the covenant. They were given all of these wonderful promises and purposes of God, but yet not all of them believed. They were not equally interested. And this is why Paul turns in verses 9 through 13 to give an illustration of this. And he gives one of the most epic illustrations from the book of Genesis. His two brothers, Esau and Jacob. We're told here that the promise was that the elder would serve the younger. This was not the way the ancient world worked, but that the younger would be favored by God and the elder would be passed over by God. And Jacob, of course, even though he had his own moments and his own sins, he was no saint, you could say, sought after God. He sought to live in light of the promises of God and the word of God. But his older brother Esau did not. He cared nothing for his birthright, we learn in the book of Genesis. And he sold it. Friends, that was not just a real estate transaction that Esau went through. He wasn't just getting ahead in a hot market. Esau was demonstrating at that point when he sold his inheritance in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, that he wanted nothing to do with this God and what he was doing in the world. It's an act of heresy and apostasy is what was happening. And so here we see that there's another decision by God. Esau and Jacob were both heirs of the covenant, and yet only one of them was truly an Israelite. Only one was in a special relationship with God. Esau had responsibilities to God. He was set apart for God. And yet he wanted nothing to do with him. Jacob, his brother, was specially related to God and an heir of these promises. 
And so it leads to a natural question, because we see these realities in the church as well today. What makes the difference? What makes the difference between someone who's set apart, brought into the church, whether it's in the Old Testament or today, when they're baptized, but yet they're really indifferent, and someone who receives the same promises and the same baptism, and yet who's vitally engaged in living by faith and knows God as their salvation? If you look in verse 11, we find the answer. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this is the answer, that the difference between Jacob and Esau comes down to God's calling. And we've seen this word before in the book of Romans. If you simply look back to chapter 8 and verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. That God effectively calls those who he has set apart specially for himself in his eternal counsel. And so he brings it to effect in historical time. And friends, this is the difference between that historically elect community and that specially elect community. The specially elect are called from amongst the historically elect, but all of the historically elect are not in a saving relationship with God. Not all of them are interested. And the difference is God has effectively called some from among that people to be his own. And friends, why does God do this? He does it so that his decision would always be free. You see what Paul argues here? It's not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's not based on anything that a human being does. And whenever, whenever we want to say that it's about my decision, or it's about my belonging to the church, or it's about my grandmother, or my father, or my mother, that I have a claim on God through any of these things, we are somehow putting a claim on the grace of God and we're chaining him down and locking him down and the Apostle Paul will have none of it. That we have to allow God to be God. It's not because of works, but because of him who calls. The grace is free, it's always his decision. And in verse 16, he says it very clearly. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Because you see, if God elects us, if he chooses us, based on what he knows we will do, if he chooses us based on what we have done, if he chooses us based on our ethnicity, then what Paul is saying, it's not according to grace. It's according to something that you have accomplished. Some running on your part, some exertion on your part. But God's grace is free is Paul's argument. And that's what distinguishes those who are in a saving relationship with God, is they have experienced that free grace. Now we come to the second point, the freedom of God. Because Paul understands that as he teaches these things, there are going to be objections. And some of the objections you may be thinking through already are right here for you. 
So one of the great things and comforting about the Bible is it presumes and knows these things about us. What shall we say then, verse 14? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul answers it for you, by no means. But he understands that these things are hard. If God has loved Jacob and he has passed over Esau, is there injustice on God's part in doing that? To answer the question, Paul quotes from Exodus 33. This is the scene where God reveals himself to Moses. And he explains that God is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he is free to have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Friends, the presumption here is that mercy and compassion are God's to give, that they're not owed to anyone, that none of us have a right to them. And it's not as if God hasn't already blessed all human beings. We see that Esau himself was blessed. He was part of this covenant people. He was set apart and had particular arrangements. And we learn in the book of Acts that God makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on all the ends of the earth. That God has a general and common grace and a love that is expressed in all his works of creation for every one of his creatures. And that we, of course, are undeserving of any of that. But what we learn here is that the special grace of God in which he awakens us and brings us alive and walks us into the knowledge of Jesus is a special gift that he is not obligated to give to anyone. It is his to give. It's his prerogative. Then in verse 18, he goes on to explain, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This verse is hard for people. What exactly is being said? That God has mercy on some, and then he hardens some. It's important to look at the language because it comes once again from the book of Exodus. And it's talking about the people of God's redemption from Israel, I mean, from Egypt Israel being brought out to the promised land and Pharaoh, his interactions with Moses. And we're told two things in the book of Exodus, both of which are true. We're told on several occasions that Pharaoh hardened his heart, that he hardened himself to God. Despite the revelation that was happening, he turns away from God. He wants nothing to do with it. He wants to overcome this God. And then we are also told, equally, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That God rendered him spiritually insensitive. And friends, this brings us directly into contact with one of the deepest mysteries that Scripture takes us into. It's the mystery of human responsibility and also of God's sovereignty. God's absolute control and our responsibility to believe. Because assumed beneath chapters 9 through 11, we'll see that Israel, in fact, any creature in God's world, is responsible to believe. And we have hardened ourselves towards him. And then we also see that there is some passing by from God in which he allows us to go further into our hardness for those who do not believe. 
Pharaoh was responsible to stop and submit and believe in God. He was to do that. However, he refused to do so. And so there's a dynamic interplay of his responsibility and divine sovereignty. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that he leaves him to his own devices and desires. He gave Pharaoh over to his already rampant desires for evil. As a college student attempting to work through these things, as one who liked to analyze and understand and try to perfect and have God's mind at times, I found myself stumped. How exactly was I to understand these mysteries and how was it fair? It was extremely comforting to find that Paul anticipated the own question, my own question that I felt. And then I had a friend explain to me. He said, Chuck, you know, it's really important to allow God to be God. But he also leaves you hints. And he leaves you things that are breadcrumbs along the way. And he said, just consider this. He said, what keeps your feet upon the ground here on the earth? easy the force of gravity he says yes and what keeps the earth in the orbit of the sun the force of gravity it's what keeps all these things together and he says so just reflect on that that two things are true there are two forces of gravity one that keeps your feet upon this planet and one that keeps your planet in orbit around the sun so that life continues the sun's gravity is greater than the gravity that keeps you here on the earth. And so the gravity that keeps you here on the earth is based in, it's constituted by, it's created by the gravity that the sun has. And so there's two things that can be true while one is still greater than the other. And friends, this is the type, it's not paradox, but it's what we would call antimony, two things being true that don't seem to reconcile in our mind. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, was once asked, Dr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile divine, divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And he said, I have no reason to reconcile friends. They live together. And friends, this is where scripture takes us. Humans are responsible to believe, but we don't. And we will not on our own. And then we also affirm that God is free to choose. He is free to awaken some to the knowledge of his grace and his mercy. And that this preserves the freedom of God's grace. That if it doesn't work this way, then God is not free and grace is not free. It is something that you earn, deserve, or accomplish. And so finally, this takes us to the final verses in verses 19 through 29, where we see something, we learn something here of the purpose of God in all this. Paul's going to field another objection in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's the question. So if God wills everything, why does he find fault? Why does he hold us responsible? And Paul explores two answers here. First, he's going to turn and say, who are you to talk back to God? Remember your place and dial it back just a little bit. It's reminiscent of the book of Job. It's not really that satisfying an answer, but it does give you perspective. 
It does remind you that you are created, that you are a creature in God's world, and that he is the creator. And that we always have to keep that distinction in mind. That we cannot rise up to the depth of the knowledge of the wisdom and the glory of God. That we don't have that capacity. And oftentimes I'm asked the question, can you explain this to me, Chuck? And my best answer is just to say this is beyond my job title. This is not my job to explain that. My job is to explain it insofar as it's revealed, to affirm what Scripture affirms, that we only come alive to God to believe in Jesus because of his mysterious work of an eternal counsel, choosing and selecting us, predestining us, and then calling us in time and leading us to faith that we would want to believe. And then also to recognize that those who do not believe have been left to themselves. That God has made a choice to leave them to themselves, that their hearts would be hardened. And so friends, this is what we are left to affirm, is that we must let God be God. We must recognize this distinction, that we can't answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is the first answer he explores. But then he takes up a second answer in verse 22. And it's important to follow this answer because he gives it some care. What if God, desiring or perhaps better willing to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's two groups that are compared and contrasted with one another. Vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction. Vessels of glory that were prepared beforehand for glory. These two phrases are important to separate apart because there's actually two different participles here in the original language, and they're also in two different tenses. And so these words prepared have different meanings, and that's essential to catch when you're reading Romans 9. That the word prepared here it means something like ripe for, that they are ripe for destruction. And note that he speaks of the patience of God. What if God is enduring these vessels with patience? And friends, this is a direct reference back to chapter 2 in verse 4. And if you'll turn there, you'll be helped to see what's happening here. Paul asks the question, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so this is the way of God, that God bears up with those who are ripe for judgment and destruction, and he does so patiently in hopes of repentance that they will turn, but he also does so for another reason, and we learn that here, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And here the participle prepared beforehand is distinctly different. It does refer to that eternal counsel in which God does something very intentionally and very actively. And what he has done there is he's predestined you. That God doesn't predestine things. He doesn't foreknow just generalities. That God knows people. That God set you apart. That God set his affections on you. And he prepared you for glory. And so God is allowing those who have hardened themselves and who have been hardened. He's enduring with them patiently so that he can display, so that he can show, so that he can manifest his glory and the greatness of salvation that he has worked in your life. This is Paul's answer to the question, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? That God has his purpose. And that, yes, this purpose, we're just given a glimpse of it here. But this purpose is great. And it involves blessing. And it involves the wisdom and the depths of the knowledge of God that go beyond all understanding. And that we are not privileged to climb up into heaven and to have all of that wisdom. But we're given a glimpse of it here. And so, friends, the net result is that we're to be overwhelmed. Like Job, our mouth is to be shut. But yet, unlike Job, we see in chapter 11 that our lips are not to remain shut. We're to recognize the wisdom and the awesomeness and the majesty of God. And then all of that and all of his free favor and all of his grace that's been given to us is to open our lips in praise. John Newton, the converted slave trader, became an English clergyman. He was also a Calvinist. And he loved the doctrines of grace, the things that we're talking about. He once wrote a letter to a friend who struggled with him. And he said, yes, well, it's the worst doctrine ever preached about and the best doctrine ever applied. And friends, there's something true about that. Hard to preach. It's the sheer north face of the eiger. We're taken into depths of mystery that we can't fully comprehend. And yet it's also sheer beauty, something glorious about the freedom of God, of God's decision, of God's affections for you, and of God's purposes in the world. And so over these chapters, get lost in that beauty, seeing all of that majesty, allowing God to be God, knowing his decision on your behalf, knowing his freedom and what he has done for you, and then glimpsing somewhat into his purposes. Let's pray. Father, this morning we do stop and we recognize your greatness and your majesty. So often we make you in our own image and we want you to conform to our own standards. And yet our standards are not just, nor are they wise, nor do we have understanding that we are clay and you are the potter. And so teach us to submit to you that we would know your wisdom and that we would yield ourselves to your truth. And God, we ask over these next weeks that you lead us and guide us into the beauty of this great mystery, that our lips would not be filled with objections, but they would be filled with praise to declare your greatness and to say 
that from you and through you and for you are all things. May your name be blessed forever. Be at work in our hearts and create us to be a community of thanksgiving and praise, of grace and mercy, who knows you by your free choice. And this morning, we acknowledge that you are our good and you are also our faithful shepherd. And you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And you always give more than either we desire, and especially more than we deserve. Hear us as we come. We come casting all of our burdens and all of our anxieties upon you, our faithful and true God. And so let's join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns. Let's pray for God's saving power to be known among the nations, especially praying for our mission partner, Jim Fitzgerald, working with Equipping Pastors International. Let's ask God to use Jim's ministry in Egypt and Iraq to provide well-trained pastors to churches in North Africa and the Middle East. Let's pray for the advance of the gospel in our city. Praying for our local ministry partner, Ray Clotaire, pastor of Elohim Evangelical Church. Ask the Lord to strengthen Ray during this difficult season to minister to the Haitian population of Jacksonville's west side. Let's pray for all in authority. And today, especially for our governor, Ron DeSantis, pray that he will promote justice, that he will restrain evil, and that he will uphold integrity and truth in our state. Let's pray for those who grieve. Let's pray for the sick. And let's pray for all who are suffering in our community this morning, asking God to heal and bring comfort. Let's remember Barb Day, Louis Fosnick, Sue Forsyth, Elizabeth Garnett, Gar Gorganius, Hector and Viona Harima, Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, Jules Smith, and Ken Ventil. And finally, let's pray for all the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to work within their hearts that they might never remember a day apart from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All this we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.